0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 133. It's page 552 in the Church Bible, if you'd like to turn. Psalm 133. We'll read the whole psalm together. This is God's very Word. Let's give it our full attention. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And our New Testament reading. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 20. That's page 1049 in the church Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2. We'll read verses 13 through 20. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire, Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray his blessing now. Humbly, Father, we ask, well aware of the hardness of our hearts, the slowness and the coldness of our hearts, that you would do a great work in us. We, we know only you can open our hearts to receive your word. We pray you do so now by your spirit. Help us not to hear the words of a mere man. Help us to hear and see Christ in your word now. We ask this for his sake. Amen. In these verses, verses 17 to 20, we read 13 to 20 for the context. But in verses 17 through 20, um, Paul takes great pains to reassure the Thessalonians of just how much he loves them. He he wants them to know how deeply he cares for them, how intensely he cares for them. It's a big theme in the whole letter of Thessalonians, Paul's particular affection for this church. But in in the whole letter, I don't think there's a passage that speaks as intensely about it as these verses do here. We see here, very very simply, in verses uh, 17 to 20, Paul's great love for this church, just how much they mattered to him, how much he misses them, how much he wants to be with them, how he loves them. Of course, Paul may have been thinking, well, they have good reason, perhaps to doubt my care for them and my love for them. Right Paul Paul comes to the Thessalonian church. He's there for 3 weeks. He labors among them, preaches the gospel to them. They receive it as the very word of God. Their lives are transformed by it. And then just 3 weeks in, persecution hits and Paul leaves. The Thessalonians can't leave. They stay being persecuted. Paul has to leave. You can imagine Paul's enemies, his adversaries in Thessalonica saying to the Christians there, see, he didn't really care about you. He just came in, did his thing, and as soon as it got hot, as soon as persecution hit, he left. So Paul wants them to know. He wants the Thessalonians to know nothing could be more untrue than that he doesn't care for these saints. He wants them to know he loves them. And he wants them to know this because He's, he's representing God to them. Uh, it's interesting to me to, to, to note here the lengths to which Paul goes to reassure the Thessalonians of his love for them, even in light of the temptation you know, that they would have faced to doubt his affection for them as, as the Apostle Paul. Um, it's interesting how much he goes on about it. He's, he repeats himself over and over in these verses, telling them his love for them. Now, I think my instinct... Maybe yours, too. If I were writing a letter to a church, perhaps I'd, I'd remind them that I care deeply about them, but my real concern and burden would be to, to let them know how much God loves them, how much the Lord Jesus loves them. And, of course, Paul does that elsewhere. He does that in this letter. He does that in other letters, right? He, he preaches the love of God for them. But here he's emphasizing how he loves them. And, and it, it's as though for Paul, he is so permeated with the love of God for his church that he feels the same love for this church. And, and he has this understanding that God's love for this church should be his love for this church too. That he is called to love the church as Jesus loves the church. And that it's important for the church to know that and feel that from him. The church should have a sense that Paul loves them even as God loves them. With the same, with the same love that God loves them. Not, not as much, right? But with the same love, the love of God. And so Paul writes here over and over of his love for them. See, Paul's always holding these two things together, isn't he? He's holding together the message that he preaches and the way he preaches it. right? The, the, the message and the manner that he, he's preaching the love of God for sinners and he's living out the love of God for sinners. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this, we need to ask ourselves, are we marked by these things? Does the message that we preach match the manner that we have with each other? The, the point of the passage is that this kind of love, this God-like love, should mark my ministry among you as your pastor, but also our life together and your ministry among one another and all our relationships together here in this church. We should be able to say with Paul that our brothers and sisters here at Bloomington OPC are our glory and our joy, even as Paul says here. So with that my introduction, let's dive, into, let's dive into the text now. Two headings to organize our thoughts as we work through the passage here before us. Number one is Paul's longing. Number two is Paul's glory. So first, Paul's longing. The first thing that confronts us in the text as as we're reading it is the force of Paul's language as he describes how it felt to be separated from the Thessalonian Christians. We read in verse 17 this. He says, having been taken away from you. The, uh, the translation softens the Greek a little bit there. Uh, another translation has having been torn away from you. In, in the Greek, uh, the, the word translated means, means to be orphaned. And in the Greek, you could use that word either for children who lost parents or parents who lost children. And so Paul is saying, when we were forced to leave you, Thessalonians, it felt like losing a child. His, his love and attachment and concern for these Christians in Thessalonica, even though he was only there three weeks, it was like the love of a father for a child. In those three short weeks that he was there, he, he opened up his heart to them, he served them, he gave himself to them, and then suddenly, all at once, persecution came and he was forced to leave, even though he would rather have stayed. Forced to leave them to suffer alone. And to him it felt like losing a child. He was orphaned from them. Uh, he, was, he was driven away from them. He, he then goes on and he tells them, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't in heart that I was separated from you. He, he says that we were separated not in, not in, pers- not, not in heart, but only in, in, in person. He was forced away from them bodily, but his heart's still with them. He's anxious for them. They're on his mind. You can picture Paul as he's traveling on the road to Berea, the next city he's going to. And on his mind and on his heart are the faces and names of these saints back in Thessalonica. He's praying for them. As he goes on from Berea to Athens, they're still in his mind, still in his heart, bearing with him this concern for these saints. And then he tells them here how, how badly he wanted to get back to see them. At the end of verse Seventeen, he says that, the, that, that he endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. He endeavored, he worked, he labored, he tried really hard to go see them because it was his desire to. The, the word there translated great desire is the word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe lust, passion, covetousness, right? This, this gut-level feeling. And Paul's saying he had this gut-level longing to see these believers face-to-face. Face. This is how deeply and really he loved these saints. And he, he, so he's telling them, I have you in my heart, I love you, and I miss you, and I want to see you. Uh, but but Paul, wants, Paul wants more, doesn't he? he he's not content to, 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 to write a letter. He'll, he'll do that if he has to, but he wants to see them face-to-face. Let me just, as an aside here, loved ones, think about this with you for a moment. This, this desire of Paul's to see these Christians face-to-face. Uh, we, we, we live in a virtual age, don't we? We have all this technology, the social media, these devices that can supposedly connect us to one another, even, though, even when we're far apart physically. My sense reading this text is Paul would not have been happy with a Zoom meeting I mean, I'm sure he would have been glad to have had a Zoom meeting with the saints in Thessalonica. It would have been better than nothing. And in this past year and a half we've been through and and what we've been through, I'm very thankful to God for the technologies we have to connect virtually, attend church virtually, as we have to. But but Paul puts this premium on being face-to-face, physically, with each other. And we don't want to lose that. We need to see the importance of that. There's a recent book that's just been published called Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. And the the writers there talk about the dangers of losing the importance of face-to-face fellowship and worship as a church. They write this, When church is only online, we can't feel, experience, and witness biblical truths becoming enfleshed in the family of God, which both fortifies our faith and creates cords of love between brothers and sisters. They're saying when we can't see each other, we can't see each other live out the gospel together. We can't see each other love one another. We we don't have the same tangible experience of God's love through one another. God has made us for face-to-face fellowship. I've used this analogy before, and I'm sure I'll use it many times because it's a good one. When my wife and I were engaged... And she's in Chicago and I'm in Maine. Um, we wrote letters. We talked on the phone. We, we had video calls. But what I wanted was, was to see her face to face. And none of those other things would satisfy me. They were good. I, I was glad for them. But what we longed for was to be face to face. And that is the gut level longing Paul has to be face to face with the church here. So for us. Do we have this? This deep, gut-level desire and earnestness to be face-to-face with each other, to be where our brothers and sisters are and have fellowship together. I'm not saying we all need to be extroverts and, and, uh, and uh, fill up our tank on being together all the time, um, but we do need each other. We need one another. We need to be face-to-face together. This is Paul's longing. This is the level of his longing for the Thessalonians. Now, he's he's told us that he wanted to go see them. What kept him? Well, verse 17 says that uh, Satan prevented him. He, He tried. Paul tried to go over and over, but Satan, he says, prevented him. Satan didn't want Paul to see the Thessalonians. Satan wanted Paul cut off from the encouragement he could get from them. He wanted the Thessalonians cut off from the encouragement they could get from Paul. We're not told how Satan did this. Maybe maybe Paul got sick. Maybe there was a legal ban on Paul entering Thessalonica. We don't know. We don't need to. I think what we need to notice here is is that this matter of face-to-face fellowship with each other is a matter of spiritual warfare. That 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 the fellowship that God calls us to together is something Satan hates and doesn't want us to see. There's a window here, right? Paul, into, into, into Paul's spiritual war. Um, Paul doesn't doesn't often doesn't doesn't frequently attribute things to Satan. Doesn't mean that Satan's not active in in conflict with with God's purposes and with Paul. Um, But here, here Paul decides to open up a window here on this spiritual war. And he says, Satan prevented me from coming to you. And he's showing us, teaching us, just how important fellowship, face-to-face fellowship, is. Okay, so that's Paul's longing. Next, though, we see Paul's glory. Um, I think at this point from the text we see how much Paul loves this church, these, these dear saints in Thessalonica but what he goes on to say as he calls them his glory is even, more, uh, is even more stunning I think. Listen to verses 19 to 20. He says this For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. First, Paul says, you Thessalonians are my hope. When Christ comes, you're my hope. His confidence on the day of judgment is that the Thessalonian Christians will be there. That they'll be found faithful there. And that Paul will, as it were, be able to present them to Christ in that day. That's his hope. It's not a wishy-washy hope. That's his firm, rock-hard confidence. It's interesting. Isn't Christ Paul's hope on the day of judgment? Isn't his only hope in Christ? Yes, it is in a sense, but here he's also saying, the Thessalonian Christians, you are my hope at the day of Christ. Second, he says, there'll be his joy at the coming of Christ. He says that when Christ returns, he's going to rejoice in this body of believers. They're going to be his great joy. He goes on, he says, third, they're his crown of rejoicing, or literally his crown of boasting before Jesus on the day of judgment. Those are are stunning things for Paul to say, aren't they? This church, you are my hope, you are my joy, you are my crown of boasting you'd be right to say, is this really Paul saying this? Right, Paul, who wrote in 2 Corinthians ten seventeen, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 1, no human being should boast in the presence of God. Or Ephesians 2, 9, we're saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. Or Romans three twenty seven, what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. The same Paul writes, you Thessalonians are my crown of boasting. Before Christ Paul Paul can say both these things he's, he, he's looking forward to the day when he stands before Christ at the, that final judgment and and he, he can say look at the Thessalonian church that he's, he's saying this is going to be my boast before Christ before King Jesus this church and Of course, we know based on the other texts and and everything Paul wrote that he's not saying that his salvation depends in any sense on the Thessalonians' faithfulness or the fruitfulness of his ministry there. If if they all crumpled and folded under the persecution and apostatized and there was no church in Thessalonica left, Paul would still be saved because of the work of Christ. But at the same time, Paul knows that... His salvation, the, the salvation that God has given him, needs to be bearing fruit. And this is some of the fruit that he's looking forward to, to, uh, to celebrating before Christ. When, when Jesus asks him, what do you do? By my Spirit's power at work in you, Paul will say, I preach the gospel to the Thessalonians. And by your grace and by your power, by your word, they believe." This is, uh, this is a thoroughly God-centered boast, brothers and sisters. Paul's emphasis so much in this letter, as we've seen, especially last Lord's Day, is on the Word of God producing faith in the Thessalonians, and God's power producing faith in the Thessalonians. So Paul isn't boasting in what he did. By by making the Thessalonian church his boast. He's boasting in what God has done through him in this church by his word. Right? Like like Martin Luther, I did nothing. The word did everything. Paul's boast is really a boast in God, isn't it? It's a boast in the cross of Christ. So Paul says, this church this is his hope and joy and boast. But he's not just thinking of the future as he thinks of this church. He's, he's also thinking about now, presently. Look with me at verse 20. He says, you are, present tense, you are our glory and joy. He's saying, right now, Thessalonians, right now you are my glory and my joy. So this is a church that he, that he already feels uh, glad about and, 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 and in a sense proud of like a father with a child. Like this, this is my spiritual child. This is a church that brings a smile to his face and lifts his heart and makes him sing with praise to God. What's the point here for us loved ones? Again, that's, that's always the question we want to be asking as we think about what's, what, what God's Word says. What does it say? And then what does it say for us? Well, here, this, this is how we should also be thinking about Christ's church, about one another, here at this church. This is how I should feel as your pastor. This is how, this is how we should feel towards one another. That, that you are my hope, joy, crown of boasting, my glory and my joy now. We live in a day, don't we, when the, the little local church is not much thought of. Um, it's not very influential. It's not very important. There's no outward glory here just just ordinary quiet everyday christians living ordinary quiet everyday christian lives there's no there's no fanfare there's there's not a whole lot here that we might think that's famous that's glorious that can hinder our sense of glorying in the church of christ but not only this there's also the difficulty of loving the church including our church because it's often not easy to is it right we we are we are sinners And we see it up close with one another. And the closer we get to each other, the more we see it. And we have our own foibles and faults and failures. And we rub each other the wrong way. And we sin against each other and offend each other and disagree on things. We get burned by each other, disappointed. If you haven't been yet, I'm sure you will be. So how is it we can say, these people who offend me, hurt my feelings, uh, sin against me, these people who rub me the wrong way, these people with whom I seem to have nothing in common, are my glory and my joy, my crown of boasting. Right? How can we say those things? Well, how is it that Paul is able to say it about the Thessalonians? We've already seen, he, he, he talks in this letter about how these believers are marked by faith, hope, and love, great virtues of the Christian faith. They're marked by perseverance, joyful perseverance in the face of suffering. They're marked by a hunger for God's word. They're marked by a bold witness in their area. The church there is thriving in the midst of challenging circumstances by God's grace. So Paul is rejoicing in those things. He's rejoicing in their sanctification. But is that all? Maybe this church is unique. Is this Paul's favorite? What about his other churches that he plants? Does he boast in those churches too? Well, yes, he, he does. We see this in Philippians four one. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. Or 2 Corinthians 1.14. He says to the church in Corinth that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So this isn't unique to the Thessalonians. This is other churches. It seems like every church Paul goes to, he's boasting in. Even a church with as many struggles and difficulties and embarrassments as Thessalonica, uh, excuse me, as, as the church in Corinth. What does this mean? It means that for Paul, what he's boasting in, what he's glorying in and loving, is nothing less than Christ in them, in this church. And all these churches, that's the thing they all share. They are in Christ. Christ is in them. And that's what Paul loves. And that's what he can boast in. He can, he can love these saints, rejoice in them, because Christ is in them. And he knows Christ is at work in them. Right? The, the church often looks like a, like a construction site, a building that's surrounded by scaffolding. It looks messy, and it's noisy, and it's dirty. But Paul says, I know the Builder, Christ. And I know the blueprint. I've seen the blueprint. I know what this building's going to be. It's going to be like Christ. It's going to look like Him. So Paul says, I don't see a mess and a waste of time. I see Christ at work, the Builder, Christ, also the blueprint. I know what He's doing here. Loved ones, look around our church. Look at your elders, your deacons. Look at those in the pew beside you and, and, uh, and those around you. It is easy sometimes to just see the construction site, the scaffolding, and the noise and the mess. Do you see the builder and the blueprint? Do you see Christ in one another? If we see Christ in one another, how can we say anything less than, You are my glory and my joy and my crown of boasting? In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis reflects on, reflects on a bit of this idea. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature if, which you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship Lewis is is saying, God is going to make us into something so glorious and wonderful, a creature who's like Christ, that if we saw that creature now, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship. Lewis, like Paul, had learned to see what God sees in the church. And God sees our Lord Jesus in the church, loved ones. He sees the Spirit at work here. Over in Galatians 2.20, 20, Paul writes about this explicitly, this, this identity. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, I am a Christian, I am a man in Christ. That's my identity. And that's how we see every other Christian as a man in Christ, a woman, a boy, a girl in Christ. Who are we in Christ? Who are you who, who who are one another in Christ? Who is that person who rubs you the wrong way in Christ? Justified. Adopted by God. Sanctified in the spirit, glorified. When we sin against each other, we sin against someone who is in Christ. When we gossip about each other or slight each other or exploit each other or just ignore each other, we're doing those things against someone who is in Christ. That's what Jesus teaches, isn't it? In Matthew 25, as he speaks of the sheep and the goats. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Paul looks at the church, he sees Christ. He says, they're my glory and my joy because they are in Christ and Christ is in them. Is this how we look at the church? Is this how we see the frustrating people, the sinful people, the people who hurt us, the people who just seem so needy? Do we see the beloved of the Lord Jesus in them? Paul doesn't just look at the believers here and say, they are in Christ, and Christ is in them, and therefore I love them. That's part of why he loves them the way he does. He also says this, Christ is in me, therefore I love them. So Paul doesn't just see Christ in them. He knows Christ is in him, so he can love them. He himself is so permeated with the love of Christ, he can't help but love what Christ loves. If it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, will I not love the church even as Christ loved the church? We began by noting how surprising it seemed that Paul would go on and on here about how much he loved this church. Because we'd say, wouldn't he go on about what Christ loved for the church? But, but Paul does this. He it tells the Thessalonians how much he loves them because his life, like his message, is a proclamation of the gospel. His love is a reflection and an overflow of Jesus' love for these people. It's a reflection and overflow of a far greater, deeper love. He's preaching by his his love for them, even as he preached the gospel to them. And he's proclaiming then, even as he says, I love you this much. He is preaching to them how much Jesus loves them. He's embodying the love of Jesus for them. And so I want to close this morning, brothers and sisters, by reminding you most of all of Christ's love for you. This is where we need to end, thinking of, of Christ's love. Even as we commit ourselves to, to love one another, we need to think most of all here about the love of our Lord Jesus. So consider Christ's love. Right, think, of, think of Paul here. He's a reflection of Christ for us. He says to the Thessalonians, I felt like I was orphaned from you. I was torn away from you. How much more longing does our Lord Jesus have for his church to be with him in, in glory? Paul says, I desire to be face-to-face with you. How much more does the Lord Jesus desire us to be face-to-face with him in glory? And however much Satan might try to hinder the Lord Jesus from this, he will accomplish it, won't he? Bringing us to himself. Paul here, Paul writes and tells the Thessalonians, you are my glory, my joy, my crown of boasting. But but we are the bride of the Lord Jesus. And isn't that even, even better? That our Lord Jesus on the day of judgment will boast in us? The ones whom he has made holy by his work. The ones who are his beloved bride. Not because we're worthy, lovable, or lovely, but because of his great love for sinners like us. So, brothers and sisters, be permeated with the love of Christ. Feed your heart on the love of Christ, and then, as you are filled up with his love, love one another, even as... He does love one another, sacrifice for each other, put up with the offenses, love the unlovely and unlovable, even as Christ has loved you. Let's pray.